This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. It's episode 719. This week, we welcome attorney Angela Bairamai. Bairamai is... um, Albanian, we're Albanian, I just learned today. For a show, we're going to call this one Insights into Restoration Law. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. And a shout out to our newest sponsor, BioPlanet, where health and technology meet. BioPlanet.com. IAQ Radio Association sponsors are AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, at AIHA.org. IICRC, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org. The Restoration Industry Association, RIA, at RestorationIndustry.org. The Environmental Information Association, EIA, at EIA-USA.org. IAQ Radio Industry Sponsors are Particles Plus at ParticlesPlus.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everybody. Congratulations go out to Tom Martin III, Elite Supply and Services, LLC in Claremont, Florida who was first to identify EN1990-EN1999 as a series of 10 European code standards providing a common approach for the design of buildings and other civil engineering works and construction projects. Here is today's IAQ radio trivia question. Name the insurance policy exclusion, which eliminates virtually all coverage for pollution incidents, including those retained under the standard commercial general liability policy. Back to you, Joe. All right. Angela Bairamai is an attorney, a licensed contractor, and a passionate advocate for restores. Prior to joining Ed Cross at his law as his law partner in 2023, she served as corporate counsel for Belfort Property Restoration. She is one of the few female lawyers in the United States who holds a residential builder license. And prior to becoming an attorney, Angela worked in the construction industry in her family's contracting business for almost 20 years. Welcome to IAQ Radio, Angela. Thanks so much, Joe. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, let's, let's let's start real quick with, with a little more on your background, how you got in. I'm assuming you got interested in construction because you had to. It was a family business. You know, you kind of probably were around it all the time. But how that led to your now being a restoration attorney? Sure. Thanks so much, Joe. Um, um, first and foremost, I, I have to do my legal disclaimer. I have to let you all know that um, the, the the information that we talk about today is not intended to be legal advice. So please don't act on anything that you hear today without input from an attorney. Every case turns on its own facts and legal questions. And so um, these questions need to be posed to a qualified lawyer who has examined the relevant facts. So you can use the points we discussed today as a checklist of, of items you can discuss with your local lawyer, um, but please don't take anything as uh, legal advice today. Um, and then first and foremost, um, 
I want to say to all the listeners out there in the field today dealing with the fallout of these crazy storms, I mean, we've seen the impact on, on this show today. Um, just please be safe out there. Watch out for each other. Be good to each other. Um, take care of each other. Um, a little bit about my background. So, yeah, you mentioned that I am a licensed contractor. I, I think of myself as a contractor first and as an attorney second. Um, we started our contracting business in 1998 just as exclusively doing painting and uh, we built it up over the years, you know, the, the, the early 2000s were booming, of course, there was tons of new construction going up, residential, uh, you know, pretty thriving commercial market. Um, we had, you know, established some some nice big, big clients who we had steady streams of work from and uh, it was all going along swimmingly until uh, 2008 happened. And uh, <laughs> it, was, it was, you know, everything just kind of came to a grinding halt and we'd had um, multiple um, clients that, you know, we'd let the receivables float for a while and they'd always come back and pay you. Well, they always came back and paid until they didn't. And uh, we really were not uh, not in a position to do much about it. We didn't have good contracts in place. We weren't monitoring lien rights. Uh, we had little documentation. And so um, we had to take some pretty big hits. Um, and, you know, so at that time, it just it, it gave us a, a, an opportunity to, you know, look at our business, look at our business practices, reconfigure some things. But it also, you know, made us realize that we needed to diversify our income sources within our family because we shouldn't probably have all of our eggs in one in, in one basket. And so I, I sort of started to look for a job and I had a four year degree, but I hadn't really been working in my field for, for quite some time and there wasn't really much out there. And so um, it was at that time that I decided ultimately um, I made the decision to go back to school. And uh, I remember when I approached my husband and I told him, oh, I, I, I'm going to go back to school. I think I want to go to law school. And he kind of looked at me and, and, and laughed and he said, oh, you, you, you can't be a lawyer. He goes, you don't know how to lie. <laughs> <laughs> um, despite that, I've, I, I, you know, persevered, uh, made it through law school. It was, a, it was a really crazy time for us. We had four little kids at home. I think the youngest was four. The oldest was 11 at the time. So it was a, it was a little bit of a chaotic time for us, but, uh, you know, we made it through and uh, graduated and got a job, you know, right away working at a, at a small law firm um, out of law school. And um, so at that point, I had earned my I had my contractor badge already and I had earned my attorney badge. Um, wasn't yet familiar at all with the restoration industry. Um, but then about a year after I had graduated from law school and I had been practicing, um, I was approached by a recruiter who was looking for um, to fill in a house position at Belfour. And prior to that, I, I knew very little about the restoration industry. I had um, I'd seen Belfour trucks around, but I didn't I didn't really know what they did. Um, so anyway, I, I went and interviewed, was hired, and um, it ended up being a great fit. Belfour is, is a phenomenal company. They've got outstanding leadership and, um, you know, some of the best people in the business. And I, I feel so fortunate that I was able to work alongside and learn from um, so many of the masters in the industry. Um, and and, and it, it was at that time that I just I really fell in love with the industry. I think it's just so full of really, really good people, people who work so hard and who sacrifice so much, you know, all the birthdays and the holidays that they miss with their families because they're yeah. out there in the field, you know, helping with helping other people in, in some of the worst times. And um, so that's how I really got fully and completely kind of sucked into the industry is just I, I fell in love with with the type of work and the people who are you know so passionate about what they do. Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Okay, well, now that you've uh, partnered with Ed Cross, what's your area of specialization uh, in this practice? 
Yeah, sure, Cliff. So my main specialization um, is restoration collections. That's what I spent most of my time working on when I was at Belfour, you know, developing, you know, systems and procedures for handling collections. And it continues to be the biggest challenge that we see with our clients today. Um, it's really, you know, the, the thing that they're most often calling about is, is they need help bringing their money in the door. And I feel like I've been really fortunate in that, um, you know, throughout my time as an attorney, I've had the opportunity to work with and learn from really great attorneys from around the country. Um, and so I've seen how, you know, I've, I've gotten to see how lots of different types of strategies have played out. And it's given me really good insight into, you know, what works and what doesn't work and what's effective and, you know, what's going to be a waste of your your time and money to pursue. Um, and so it's really, you know, been helpful to um to, to really hone in my, my my strategic expertise on the best some of the best approaches to approaching your collections. Um, I also do a lot of advising companies on their best practices. I think it's really, really important for restorers to understand that collecting money starts on day one of your job. You always need to be thinking about where your money's coming from. You, you need to you know, know who's going to be paying your bill at the end of the day. Um, and there's so many things that you can do from day one on every project that are going to really help protect your company and help ensure that once you get your bill out, you're actually going to get a check back in return. Um, I think, in my opinion, probably about 90% of successful collecting is what you do during the course of your work, um, from the time you're getting your contract signed, uh, communicating clearly and effectively with owners and adjusters and consultants, and setting realistic expectations to your clients, not over-promising on things, uh, documenting in a way that fully supports your scope and supports your invoicing, and then finally, being consistent with sending out invoices and following up on payment. And so if you develop and follow protocols and systems for handling all of these things on all of your jobs, then the final step of bringing the money in the door is going to be a lot easier. Um, and then I'd spend a lot of time just on everyday, you know, troubleshooting. I'll get calls from my clients and they're out in the field and they'll have, you know, a particular situation going on. And, you know, what's the best way to handle it? What's the best way to limit my risk on this? Um I think the bottom line is that there's a, there's a lot of risk in our industry, um, but there's also a lot that restoration contractors can do to help mitigate that risk. So in addition to collections work, I, I you know do a lot of advising contractors on um, effective risk management. But um, at the end of the day, you know mostly the biggest need out there is is, is assistance with with collecting the money uh, once you once you get your invoice out. Angela, I'm I'm assuming, but rather than assume, I'm going to ask the expert. Um, with respect to collections and all the great advice you gave, would you give similar advice for people in the construction industry and in the indoor air quality consulting world who are also dealing with collections? Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. I think at the end of the day, um, the more you can set up your processes and procedures. So everybody knows what to expect next. Everybody's been communicated with, um, you end up with customers who are a lot more happy and then they're a lot more willing to pay their bills when they're happy. So I think that's, you know, I think it, I employ, I, I, I like to practice what I preach and I, I employ the same techniques that I, um, that I advise my clients to do in my own legal practice. I think it, it carries over, you know, good customer service and learning how to serve people uh, most effectively. Um, it's, it's, you know, crucial to being su successful in any industry but particularly in the restoration industry, because there's so much risk and there's so much nuance and there's so much technicality that you've really, you've got to have clean systems in place. So you're making good decisions in the field about how to proceed and what your processes and procedures should be, when to bring in other, you know, professionals to assess different types of things. And so um, 
you know, there's it's it's um so much about being successfully bringing your money is is how you approach your day to day work and um you know your your, your communications and handling of your client relations. I think you've done a good job too of explaining why collections is such a big issue in the restoration world as versus construction and, and you know IAQ consulting. I don't think it's as big of an issue, but you've got so many variables in collections with um, with restoration, especially when, you know projects are never clear up front. You know you you go in and you're not sure exactly what you're going to run into. So I I appreciate that. Cliff, you want to jump on? You want to? Yeah, the next I, one? I do. Thanks. Well, what are the most common mistakes that restoration companies normally make in handling the whole procedure? Yeah, so I think um, I think there's a couple. Number one, I think um, having good communications is key. If you've got poor communications, um, your your project is is going to fall apart really quickly. Um, when a, when a restoration contractor comes onto a job site, they're going to be coming, these, the, the, the people who own the property, they're going to be scared. They've just been through a traumatic experience. They don't know what the process is. They're unfamiliar with it. The property has been destroyed. You know, they're likely, you know, they might have to find a different place to live for a while. Um, and so they're, they're, you know, they're scared. Um, and so if you can go in and clearly communicate with them from day one, let them know what the process is and what the process entails. You set realistic expectations, keep them in the loop during every step of the way so they're well-informed. Well-informed customers are happy customers. Happy customers are a lot more likely to pay than unhappy customers. And so I would say as part of communicating clearly, you should be updating the relevant parties. Identify early on who the relevant parties are. If you've got, you know, you've got your owner, obviously you've got your adjuster, you might have a, a public adjuster involved. There's maybe a property manager involved or an insurance broker. Identify who those parties are and set up an email chain with them where you're giving them regular and systematic updates about um, what your progress is on the job. So you're going to update them on uh, where you've been and what you've accomplished, what your next steps are, um, what your completion timeline is, when are you going to be done. It's a good time to bring up any deliverables that are owed by any of the other parties. So if, you know, if there's any allegations of delay later on, you can go back and track where those delays came up. And then continually and always be reminding them that at the end of the day, you have a you have an expectation that you're going to get paid for the work you do. So continually reminding them of you know when invoices are going to be sent out, when invoices are going to be due, um, keeping that 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 payment at the forefront of their minds throughout the project. As you're also you know updating them on all of the progress that you've made toward returning their property to its pre-loss condition. So um, I think the commu the communications. Um, are just absolutely key. Um, we've got some some really great resources um, at our law office to help you to help assist contractors um, in their collections process. We've got a book on collections which provides strategy and guidance on setting yourself up for successful collections. And then um, to go along with that, we've got a product called the Collections Toolkit, which provides you with the actual tools that you need to collect successfully. So it's got template demand letters, and it's got uh, telephone scripts, and it gradually escalates. It provides you with a whole plan of attack from, um, you know, the first day that your receivable is overdue and how you approach your communications with the client for maximizing um, your success and being able to collect. So uh, both of these web, uh, resources are available um, for purchase directly from our website at edcross.com. What's the name of the book, Angela? Um, the book on collections? Yes. First one, and then the collections toolkit is the second one. Okay, and I, I've got to those. I think probably after the show. 
Okay. Um, communication key for any contractors, consultants, whoever. Can restoration contractors and do they and should they invoice for their time doing this communication? Or is that something, you know, you're going to talk about maybe every day sending out a, a review of what you did that day. Is that something that's billable? Um, it depends on how your contract is set up and it depends on, you know, what your, what your parameters are on that project. I think a lot of times it's, it's uh, more of an administrative task and it, it might not be directly billable to the job, but it's part of uh, what you need to be doing to keep your, um, to keep, um, your, your good, your, your documentation and your, your communications in order so that you're, um, you know, you're, you're well organized. So I think it's, it's part of your process and procedure. I think it uh, could potentially could be part of your overhead, but depending on, um, how you approach it and how your contract is written, um, it could potentially, you know, some of it could be um, considered to be billable. I can imagine on a big project, if you're doing a lot of stuff every day, you know, you might put a half an hour to an hour a day into this communication. It seems like you should get reimbursed for that. But uh, Cliff, go ahead. Yep. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, liens, you know, mechanics liens. Um do you find them effective? Should contractors lean the property, uh, you know, automatically uh, or not? Yeah, I in my experience, I think liens are probably one of the most effective tools that contractors can use to secure the right to payment. Um, a lien provides security for your receivable. Um, you can use it to force the sale of the property to collect the balance that you've owed, and it's gonna prevent the property owner from selling or transferring or refinancing the property without addressing the lien. I found that a lot of times businesses will have operating lines of credit that are um, connected to the equity in their property. And so filing a, the lien is, filing a lien against the property is gonna potentially deplete their equity in the property and, um, op, and, and then impact their operating line of credit. And so sometimes just the threat of a lien is enough to motivate an owner to get you paid on a project. Um, with regard to, as of course, leaning all projects, I, I, I don't think so. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a case by case basis and you need to look at the individual facts of every case, you know, why are you not getting paid? What's the cause of the delays? I think it's, it's um, you know, it's something you should very seriously consider on every job once you're getting to the point where your lien rights are about to expire. Um, but I, I, I would, I probably wouldn't advise to just as a blanket rule, lean every, every project where your where your receivable is laid. I think it, you know, there's, there's, there's circumstances to consider on every project. Um, couple things to remember about liens. A lien is always in most States, it's a, it's a two-step process. So you'll have your first deadline is going to be from the day that you finish your last day of work on the project. Um, you'll have a, a specific period that you have um, to actually record the lien. And so the lien will get recorded in you know, your Register of Deeds Office or your Recorder of Deeds Office. Um, and then once the lien is recorded, there's going to be a second deadline that you have to enforce the lien. And enforcing the lien uh, basically means that you've got to file suit in court to um, foreclose the lien. And so if you miss that second deadline, what happens is your lien just expires. It becomes of no force or effect. You have to Take, you have to follow through with the second step of actually enforcing the lien before it expires if you want to um, utilize that lien to try to collect what you're owed. So um, important to understand, it's, you don't just file the lien and let it sit there. It's a two-step process, and you actually have to take action on that lien at some point. Um, and then the biggest, one of the biggest mistakes that I want to go over that I, that I often see restoration contractors making is with regard 
to um, the notice that's required. Now, lien, lien statutes are different in every state. So every state has slightly different um, different regulations with regard to how liens need to be processed, what your allowable time periods are, what your notice requirements are. So you need to be very intimately aware with the lien statute and requirements in your state. But one of the biggest mistakes that I commonly see contractors make is with regard to um, providing notice, providing appropriate notice of their right to lien. Um, and the idea behind the notice requirements is that um, property ownership rights are taken really seriously. And so before someone is permitted to compromise another person's property rights, they've got to follow a very specific process. And that process is laid out in each state in a, in a statute that um, you know, governs how uh, liens work. And so as part of that process, a property owner always has a right to know who's going to be potentially having lien rights against their property. So if you're contracting directly with the property owner, that's usually going to be adequate notice in most states. There's a couple of states that also require a separate notice to be sent out. There's um, a couple of states that require you to actually file something with the Register of Deeds to provide adequate notice of a construction project. Uh, but in most states, um, the contract is going to be is going to serve as adequate notice. And uh, most states have specific provisions that you need to include in your contract. Um, but you don't need to do anything beyond that in most states. But whenever you don't have a direct contract with the owner, so if you're a subcontractor on a project, or the context where I often see this come up is um, if there's a new build in, pro in, in process and there's some sort of a loss on the build and the GC calls in a restoration contractor to come and mitigate that loss. In that case, you're usually contracting with the GC, not the property owner. And so the property owner doesn't have the notice that you're on site working. And so in that case, you've got to send a separate, um, it's, it's called like a notice of furnishing, or it's a note, basically a statutory notice to the owner that you're going to be working on site and that you're going to have potential lien rights. And if you fail to do so, um, you're generally not going to be able to record an enforceable lien. And so I, I think the bottom line and the, the main takeaway that I want everybody to get is that you really need to be intimately aware of the requirements and regulations um, governing liens in your state, and especially any circumstances where different requirements from what you're normally doing kick in. So you've got, you know, flags or, or you know, some sort of a, a process in place so you can deal with those getting your proper notices out and making sure that you're preserving your lien rights. Because it really is a very, very powerful tool um, to for, for res res restoration contracts to contractors to be able to collect um, at the end of the day. Angela, I've got a text question that, that has my uh, interest here. I, I don't know if you can answer this or not, but let's give it a try. My impression is that mold and IAQ litigation is way down in the last few years. Uh, first, would you agree with that? Secondly, this appears to be responsible for the diminishment of my consulting business, which is cons assisting owners and contractors with science-based solutions to problems in the field, expert witness, et cetera. Do companies feel less pressure now to fully resolve restoration issues? So let's let's start with the first part. Uh, is mold and IAQ litigation down in your experience? Yeah, I, I really think it is. I think there was a huge, I think in the early 2000s, it was a, it was a huge thing. And I think since then we've had, you know, some science come come out and, and, and show that some of the, the horrible effects that we originally were told are associated with mold. It's it's a little bit more muddy to prove um, the, the causation issues. And so I think um, there definitely has been a drop off in, in mold litigation, um, you know, 
moving into, you know, past, past the early 2000 um, period. I think the, the, the biggest risk that I see with, um, with contractors with, with, with regard to mold is, um, is making sure it's, it, it's the, the, the regulatory and enforcement environment, making sure that they're complying and making sure that they're not, um, you know, getting, getting citations and compromising their licenses and things of that nature. So I think, you know, that's where we still need the, 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 IAQ professionals to come in and to be writing the protocols and to be, you know, determining how these things need to be addressed. Um, but I think in, in terms of, of litigation, and I have to also say a disclaimer that a lot of times if there are mold claims, those claims would be sent, um, they would be um, sent to your liability carrier to handle and we don't handle those types of claims. So I wouldn't see them coming across um, very often in, in the course of my practice because we don't represent, we don't represent carriers. We're not carrier counsel, we represent contractors only. Um, and so it's it's a little bit removed from what we do, but it's I, I think you're absolutely spot on with with the observation that it's really it's really dropped off um, from you know where it once was. Uh, Cliff, do you want to jump in, or I got one more, but it's yeah, up to you. Yeah, no, um, I, I, I do have one. And um, Angela, restoration companies do a lot of different things. So there are certain restoration companies that are. For service they do everything there's certain restoration companies that just do contents and and pack outs and and so on and so forth when it comes to liens what sorts of services uh can the, does the restoration contractor have to provide in order to provide a lien Good, good, good question. Good question. Because yeah, there's a lot that goes into our projects and some parts of it are lienable and some parts of it aren't generally. And like I mentioned before, when I was talking about liens, the lien statute, the lien statutes vary significantly from state to state. So you really need to examine the language of the lien statute in the state you're working on and also look at how the courts have interpreted that statute. Um, I think generally the in most states, the, the general guideline is that you need to be, it, the, the work needs to be related to providing an actual physical improvement to the property in order for it to qualify as a mechanics lien. Now, in some cases, if you need to take contents and move those contents out of the property in order to do your work, then that contents work would be considered lienable in some states if it's necessary to the permanent repairs of the property. Um, as far as mitigation versus cleaning goes, um, I think generally, if you're doing dry out following a loss to mitigate further damage to the property, then in most states, you can make the argument that that provides that that qualifies as providing an improvement to the property, because if you fail to do so, the property is going to deteriorate, it's going to cause, you know, health issues, there's going to be growth of biological contaminants. And so that's going to cause the property to diminish in value. And so that's the improvement that you're providing to the property by stabilizing it and um, mitigating any additional damage. I think if you're just providing, you know, basic maintenance and cleaning janitorial type services, you're probably um, not going to have lien rights in most states. It's going to be, it's got to be something that's more linked to uh, preserving the structure of the property. So it's, it's again, it's a, it's a factual, it's, it's a case by case factual analysis that you have to do as to what was, what work was necessary um, to provide the improvement to the property. And that's the extent generally um, to which your work is going to be lienable. Thank you. Does that make it tougher for people who are doing consulting, um, home, ins well, home inspections, et cetera, to place a lien? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, like lien, the Michigan lien statute, for example, it lays out specifically like 
certain certain consulting type work, certain you know delivering materials to a job site. Uh, lays out very specifically what's leanable and what's not, not leanable. And it, again, it does vary quite a bit state to state and how the courts have interpreted these provisions. So you really, um, sometimes it is, you know, some, you know, uh, drawing up architectural plans is generally considered something that is leanable because it's part of the work of improving the property. The consulting, I think, you know, it's, 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 it's going to be very nuanced and it's going to be something that you're going to have to look at on a case by case basis as to whether you can actually argue that it is, um, part of the uh, improvement to the property. Sure. Now, how, how does that differ or is there any difference when it's a residential versus a commercial or industrial property? So sometimes the notice requirements differ, but generally the definition of leanable work isn't going to be that different between residential and commercial. So like, for example, in Michigan, um, if you want to lean a residential property, you've got to have specific language in your contract. And that's about consumer protection. It's about, you know, making sure that the consumer is aware that you're going to have these potential lien rights. You don't have to have that in Michigan in commercial contracts to be able to file enforceable liens. So there's differences in the way that residential versus commercial clients are treated, I think, in the lien statutes. But there's not really a difference in um, the type of work that's leanable at all, the, the, the type of work that's leanable is generally always going to come down to um, whether it's it constitutes an improvement to the property, a physical improvement to the property, whether it's uh, residential or commercial. Okay. Cliff? Yeah, thanks, Joe. Um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, contractual and, and the differences between adjusters. You know, if we're working for a company adjuster, he has authority to bind the company. He has a, he has a checkbook or, uh, you know, with which issue drafts and so on and so forth. Independent adjusters generally don't have that. And it seems that we've always had more trouble collecting on projects where we're dealing with an independent adjuster rather than a company adjuster. Um, what can we do to ensure that our name gets on the check or the checks come directly to us, you know, when we're dealing with independents? Um, I think the most important thing you can do um, in both contexts is take advantage um, of the, um, of your, your right to get an assignment of insurance benefits. Uh, so if you can get an assignment signed and then provide notice of that assignment to the carrier and to the independent adjuster um, at the outset of the project, that's going to go a long way to really protect your rights to get your name on those insurance checks. Um, the, the, the key is notice. Notice is king. If you want your assignment to be enforceable, you've got to provide the carrier and the adjuster with adequate notice of your assignment. Um, and, and be persistent, let them know what you want often and in writing and, you know, don't be afraid to follow up and, and you know, make sure you're reiterating to them. We need our name on the check as, as, as often as you can. Um, we do have a we have a phenomenal um, another phenomenal resource um, for purchase on our website at edcross.com. It is the book on assignments of benefits and it's. Um, it's it, the, the book takes you through, you know, the benefits of assignments, um, some of the nuance of assignments, how to effectively use them um, in your in your practice. And also it has um, assignment forms for all 50 states, as well as a template letter that you can use to notify the carrier that you've got the assignment. And it goes through, you know, case law and it directs them to um, direct all payments directly to the contractor. 
So if, if this is something that is an issue for you, um, collecting and, and getting your name on the checks, I strongly suggest that you check out our book on assignments and um, implement getting assignments of benefits signed on your job. So you'll have, um, you know, you, it, it, it opens up the door for more avenues to collect what you're owed at the end of the job. You, you don't just, you don't only have the opportunity to go after the property owner for your payment. You can also step into the shoes of the property owner and be able to pursue the carrier. Now, um, of course, disclaimer, there's, it's, it's, it's a really hot um, topic in, in legislation and in the courts right now, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of legislation. Currently, we see lots of changes. We see lots of lots of courts. It's something that's really being addressed. Carriers, you know, um, the insurance companies are the second most powerful lobby uh, in our country after big pharma. They're very powerful. They're very well organized, and it's very hard to, um, you know, to, to, to contest them. They're, they're, they just have a much better bargaining position than most contractors. And so the assignment helps to level out the playing field a little bit um, by allowing contractors to step into the shoes of the insured and be able to pursue the carriers directly. And a lot of times the, the, the insureds will, you know, they've already got their home fixed. So they're not really motivated to, to pursue their carrier, to get more money to pay you. Um, and so a lot of times the, 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 the contractor is going to be a lot in, in, in a better position to pursue that money. And so the assignment is the vehicle that allows them to do that. And so that's what I um, strongly recommend. Um, when you're when you're having these types of issues with um, adjusters putting your names on the checks, association sponsors are AIHA Healthy Workplaces, a Healthier World. AIHA.org, the Environmental Information Association, EIA's multidisciplinary membership collects, generates, and disseminates information concerning environmental and occupational health hazards in the built environment at eia-usa.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry, iicrc.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the oldest and largest nonprofit professional trade association dedicated to providing leadership and promoting best practices through advocacy, standards, and professional qualifications for the restoration industry at restorationindustry.org. Industry sponsors are Particles Plus. Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us, particlesplus.com. So we're back. we got Angela Byramai uh, talking a little bit about insights into restoration law. Cliff, I want to turn it over to you to start the second half. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Um, is a work authorization sufficient to begin emergency work on a restoration project? I mean, we get called in the middle of the night and, you know, uh, that's... Yeah, um, so generally, generally, no. Generally, you're going to want a really good, well-written contract. Um, a work authorization is is usually, as it's used um, in the industry, just sort of a bare bones authorization to proceed work to proceed with work, and it doesn't generally have um, a lot of good terms and conditions that are gonna that are gonna protect the contractor really well, and um, that's that's just so essential in protecting your rights. I think that um, you need to make sure that your contracts are fully compliant with the laws and requirements in your state. So, like for example, in Michigan. If you don't, like I mentioned earlier, if you don't include specific language related to liens in a residential contract, you're compromising your lien rights. 
So you want to have, you know, you want to make sure you're including clear payment terms, appropriate penalties for non-payment, and limits on liability uh, to the great to the greatest extent that you that you can. Um, so you know, some of the some of the really horrible contracting decisions that I've that I've seen made. Please don't just take the generic template that your franchisor gave you when you bought into your franchise and use that as your contract. It needs to be taken to an attorney. It needs to be reviewed and updated so it's compliant with the laws in the specific state where you're operating. Um, please don't piecemeal your contract together based on a collection of contracts uh, from your competitors that you've put together over the years. I've seen, I've seen contracts, uh, contractors who've done this, and they've got you know two blatantly contradictory provisions right next to each other in their contract that you know they thought both sounded good. Um, so that's that's problematic. <laughs> um, ChatGPT, it's a great resource for lots of things. I did a couple of test runs in there just to see um, how it would how it would do with writing contracts. And it was, there was, it was extremely problematic. So please, um, you know, maybe that technology is going to be there at some time in the future, but it certainly is not there today. So um, please make sure that you've got good contracts are just so essential to protecting you from, from um, un, unneeded risk and protecting your right to get pay, paid at the end of the day. Um, we actually have um, contract Com comprehensive contract packages for several states available on our website at edcross.com with, um, you know, well-vetted terms and conditions that are really um, designed to not only make it easier for you to collect at the end of the day, um, but also really help limit your risk exposure when uh, when you're approaching your, your work. So um, I can't stress enough about the importance of, of having good contracts and making sure that your contracts are vetted by an attorney and compliant with all of the requirements in the state where you're operating. Angela, we I do a little construction in Pennsylvania, and, and in the Pennsylvania law, you have to provide in your contract the customer uh, a three-day opt-out, essentially. Um, and, and I assume it's like that in many states, but as a restoration contractor, that would seem like, which would take precedence? You know, I'm on an emergency project. I've got to start now, not three days from now, and then somebody two and a half days in goes, ah, I don't want that. Uh, I, I want to get out of that agreement. How does that work? Yeah. So in Michigan, um, and I'm not sure how it works in Pennsylvania, but in Michigan, there's an exception to the rule for emergency situations. And so you have to give them a notice and they can affirmatively waive the right to cancel. So in Michigan, that's how you get around it. And it's part of our, it's, we include that in part of our contracting packages. Like when you're offering emergency services, you have to affirmatively get the client to sign off on this. So they're waiving the three-day statutory right to cancel. And that only applies in emergency situations. So, you know, obviously when you've got a water loss, you've got to get in there and, and get it dried out ASAP. And so that's the, the, the context where you would, um, where you would use that. And then there's also a, um, a federal right to cancel that um, applies in all States. And mm. that's, that's um, also addressed in our contracts packages. And um, it's uh it's it's these are these are things that are that are they're very state specific generally and that you've got to be aware of what the specific laws are in your state so again you should be taking your contracts to an attorney to have them vet them out so you can have all of these all of these um little nuances of the law worked out so you can you know be prepared to move forward with your emergency services and not um be running the risk of of um having the the, the client have some pretext some contractual pretext of why they're not going to have to pay you for that work all right, we've got a bunch of uh, chat 
questions. I want to get to one of them, and then, Cliff, if you want to jump in after this. But this one goes back to the lien question. If a lien is needed, what is the time it takes from payment date on the invoice to actual money in the bank? Um, I'm not really sure what that means. Um, if you if you file a lien against a property, that doesn't guarantee you're going to get payment. It just gives you a tool to pressure the owner to get payment to you. So if you file a lien enforcement action, it's a really it's a it's a long and drawn out process to um, actually file the action to foreclose the lien and go through the whole litigation process to get to the point where you're going to be able to force the sale of the property to collect on it. The good news is that in most states, the lien statutes allow for recovery of interest and attorney's fees. So you're not going to be losing all that money through through, through the of the course of the proceedings, provided that there's equity in the property, that you're going to be able to sell the property for more than it's worth and, and, and pay off all the priority mortgages before you um, and have some proceeds left to satisfy the amount of your lien, your attorney's fees and uh, whatever uh, interest and expenses you've incurred. So it's uh, it's 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 going to be a long and drawn out process to actually go through the whole process to foreclose a mechanics lien. Um, I, 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 again, it's going to be Every state's going to be a little bit different, so I, I can't give a straight-up answer of how long you know it's going to take. Generally, um, when you file a lawsuit to foreclose the lien, at some point you get to mediation, and the owner ends up coming up with some money so <laughs> they can get you paid, so they don't. You don't. I've never actually had to force the sale of a building um, to foreclose a mechanics lien. Oh, that's that's good to know. All right, Cliff. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, working for world's largest restored damaged property, you probably had the opportunity to see some crazy stuff. What are some of the crazy reasons that people didn't want to pay you? Um, you know, just unusual things yeah, know, that, that they I, claim or say or whatever. I've had so, so many, um, files come across my desk where you look it over and you're just like, wow, you, you cannot make this stuff up. Um, <laughs> I had one case where um, a contractor was accused of um, disposing of a, a, of a prized 50 year old collection of broken fingernails. <laughs> I'm not sure how to go about valuing that. Um, and they were really upset about it. I had one client who, um, they, they, they sent us this whole litany of workmanship issues associated with their property. So I ended up going out there with my local team to do a site visit of all of these alleged workmanship issues. And there was a portion of the house that was unaffected by the loss. And there was, an, there was a portion of the house that was part of the rebuild. And there was a clear distinction. I mean, it was, it was just dilapidated. It was full, the, the, the unaffected part of the house was, was dilapidated and it, you know, it was falling down. And there was, there was, there was like, just stuff contents piled up everywhere there's like little tunnels through the contents to get through the house and the part that was impacted by the loss was I mean it looked leaps and bounds way nicer than the pre-existing part of the house and so we're going through with this owner and she's she's going through all of her workmanship issues and um we walk by this recessed lighting fixture and she pulls out a ruler and she she, she climbs up on this ladder and she holds it up to the recessed lighting fixture and she says okay do you see how the bulb on this side is five millimeters away from the edge of the of the fixture? And on this side, it's three millimeters. Shouldn't it be four millimeters both ways? And you're looking around and it's just a wow. dumb bear around you. And, and, and that's what she's worried about. <laughs> it's sort of a setup because the, she doesn't like the way the bulb lines up in the middle of the light fixture. You never um, know. So that was a good one. And then and then there's always the, you know, there's the 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 wannabe scammers, but they're really, really bad at it. Like, you know. <laughs> 
the client who comes and says, oh, I injured myself tripping over your drying equipment. And they produce, you know, a, 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 some doctor's reports that, you know, indicate, oh, yeah, they, 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 they tripped. They felt looks like they had some sort of an injury. But then you check the dates of the report versus the dates your equipment were on site. And you realize, oh, well, we didn't even have equipment on site on the day that you fell. Are you sure you tripped over our equipment? Where's the equipment that you tripped over? So, um yeah, lots of lots of uh, people who see, you know, a company with a big target on their back and they you know, they see that big insurance check come in and they're like, oh, that's a lot of money to give them. Do they really deserve all that money? And they, Especially yeah. when a target's oh. part of the logo, huh? <laughs> 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 all right. Um, I got a text question from the audience here. Is there a benefit in terms of faster payout to become a contracted preferred vendor for insurance companies? Um he works with two different companies and one has and one and the other is not, but their collection process is different. So it's tough to compare. What do you think? I think that's a, that's a personal decision that every contractor needs to make. I think there's some advantages to working in preferred vendor programs. And I think probably a faster track to payment is probably one of them, but then there's also certain things that you compromise when, you know, you're, when you're agree to work in those programs. And so I think you just need to look at your business model and whether that type of work fits within your business model and whether the advantages of that type of work outweigh the disadvantages. Um, I think, you know, I think there's, there, there might be some validity to the fact that you get paid faster, but then I think there's also, you know, some, some clear drawbacks. Cliff, do you want to ask another question? Or you want to go to the roundup and bring in Pete? Um, I've, got, I've got a couple more actually. Go ahead. Um, I guess, how did you get this? Zarina moniker. Where's that come from? <laughs> <laughs> so that that came from that came from brother Pete Consigli. Um, so I, I was fortunate to get to spend quite a bit of time um, at the various conferences and industry events this year, summer camp included, uh, with Pete. And uh, after after you know spending some time together and getting to know me a little bit, that was the uh, that was the moniker that he came up with. And uh, I, I, I like it. He he brought it up and I was like, yeah, that's that's badass. Let's, you know, bring it on. I think <laughs> it makes me, you know, makes me sound kind of cool. Plus, plus Zarina is a really great Scrabble word. So there you go. <laughs> go ahead, okay. Cliff, go ahead. You, you, okay. Um I guess one other one. Um what's going on, I guess, with issues of um concern with, with clients. Uh, saying that, you know, perhaps they had a, an irritation, a reaction that they've been harmed by chemicals used, by equipment used, uh, you know, so on and so forth. Has that been a big issue for you or do you see that commonly? Um, I've I've seen it a few times and that's something that would get addressed through um, like a, through your workers comp policy. But I think that, you know, it, it, it comes down to training. You've got to have great training and supervision of your people. Um, and it's got to be consistent and you, you have to enforce it. Um, I got a real, real good um, glimpse into what, what companies are facing with regard to safety. When I um, when Hurricane Ian hit, I got to um, go down as part of Belfort's first response team and uh, spend uh, most of the month of October of uh, 2022 down in uh, Fort Myers with, with with the team. And I got to sit in mobile command and see the people come and go and go out on a lot of job sites. And um, man, I the things that we saw and the things that we had to stop and yell at people, you know, for doing, you know, walking around barefoot on job sites, taking, <laughs> you know, 
refusing to wear safety goggles when they're like drilling and working with chemicals. It, you, you just have to be so, so constantly vigilant about safety. You can't, I mean, you just can't be careful enough. You know, your, your people are your greatest resource. Um, and so it, it, you've got to just come, it, it comes down to training your people um, and, and, and reinforcing and reinforcing and training. Um, it's just such, such an important issue. And I, I do think that um, job site safety is, 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 a, is a big issue and um, it needs to be, it, it, it doesn't need to be a big issue. I think it needs to, you know, it's, it's just something that you have to be continually, continually vigilant about. I, I really meant the question not so much from an employee side, and I think that that was great advice. And I meant more from the policyholder side. You know, oh. um, yeah, you, know, you know, okay, uh, okay. You know, your chemicals reacted. Uh, I can't get the smell of the chemical out of the house, or yeah, you know. um, I think those are those are issues that generally you're going to have addressed through your contract. There's contractual provisions that are going to protect you against those those types of claims. So I think um, having good contracts is key to that. I haven't seen a ton of claims. I see a lot of claims where, um, particularly with smoke damage, where you can't get rid of the smoke odor, and they're yeah. you know they're coming back and you know asking for for you know more work, additional work um, to try to get rid of smoke odor. I think that's the biggest one. And then you know if there are people. In, in in cases where there's people who have you know specific chemical sensitivities um where they're more sensitive than normal people to the chemicals and they might have some sort of a reaction um and again there's ways in your contract that you can protect yourself from liability in those cases so it comes down to so much comes down to good contracting um i, I guess if i could just follow up just once more uh what about chemical issues regarding wildfires uh any any Anything on that, that uh, the smoke from the wildfire to fire is hazardous, uh, that the restoration contractor didn't completely remove it, uh, so on and so forth. Anything yeah, I, I personally have not come across any of those types of claims. I think it probably would come out in the context of a warranty claim, and it would probably end up being um, a, an issue of, of um, you know, a, a dispute between an IH who wrote a protocol, the contractor who carried out the protocol the carrier who's having to cover it and, and, and maybe not wanting to cover it. Um, but it's not something that I have uh, personally come across um, in, in, in a really meaningful way. Good. Joe, Angela, back to you. Thank you. I've got uh, a quick chat question. Actually, actually there's two of them here, but I'll, I'll get one now. I'll try and get to one in the roundup. How would you respond to an insurance adjuster offering the same amount for our invoices every time, no matter the invoice amount? Could you argue the adjuster is negotiating in bad faith? That sounds like a a unique issue. Yeah, it. Um, you know, we see so, 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 so many cases of adjusters trying to um, force contractors to accept the lowest possible um, rate that they can for their work or adjusters trying to force contractors to only use the very basic generic um, software pricing. And contractors have, there's a lot that goes into pricing and there's a lot that goes into appropriate pricing and contractors, you know, they're actually supposed to update the software pricing to reflect their actual prices, actual market prices. They're required to do those updates. And so it's a huge problem with adjusters trying to force certain pricing um, on restores, 
As to the question of whether it can potentially constitute bad faith, a bad faith has a different definition in every single state, and every single state has different remedies and different standards for determining that. So it's really something that you would, it would be very fact specific and factually intensive. A lot of it's going to come, be able to come down to what you're going to be able to prove and what you're going to be able to show what the adjuster has committed to writing. And so it's definitely an intensive factual determination to when you're, when you're considering whether bad faith has occurred. But it's, it's absolutely definitely possible that that type of assessment or evaluation of the claims could lead to, or could be construed as bad faith. It's definitely something that's worth reaching out to an attorney and talking through and talking through the specific facts and what the standards are in that state and analyzing it accordingly. Let's bring in the restoration industry's global watchdog, Pete Consigli. Pete, do we have you? First of all, I can answer that last question about in California needs a dollar amount. Something that Ed has advocated for years under California law, he says the strongest thing in a contract is to put the exact amount in there. In other words, he said even on emergency stuff, he said that if, you know, to put 5,000 as the number is a better defendable contract than doing a time and material estimate, even if you have your rate schedule and your scope listed. So that's the secondary thing. That's probably the most common practice that a lot of contractors use for the emergency stuff. I don't know if the question was directly related to that, but I just always remember getting into discussion because, you know, those of that know me, I, you know, I was a contractor in California for 20 years. So I, I'm kind of familiar with a lot of that stuff. In any case, um, the uh, so a couple a couple of comments that I have. Uh, so Angela, I, uh, I haven't seen you out there yet. I know you and I got really excited when I came up with the Zarina title. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you, here in the political world, they talk about the czar of this and the czar of that. But the czar is masculine. So I figured for feminine, it would have to be Zarina, right? <laughs> Anyway, I'm glad I'm glad you like the topic. Uh, you like the uh, Monica. So we have the restoration lawyer and the the collections arena. Anyway, that's like the one-two punch of the Edward Cross and Associates. Um, but I got a title, and Cliff, I want you to put this in the blog. So now it's, I'm going public with this. I got a title for Ed's third book. You know, the first book was the the contract book. Dedicated that to me. He took this picture of me and him at Circus Soleil for years back where we both were very young and good looking. Uh, we're still good looking. We're just not as young. And uh, in the second book on the AOBs, I think he he uh, he dedicated that one to Mark Springer. So here's the third book. I think he re- he needs to write a book on dealing with mortgage companies. I on think what? Repeat dealing it. with mortgage companies. Oh, dealing with dealing with. with. Okay. Yeah. I think dealing with mortgage companies is the, that's kind of like the, you know, it's like the white elephant in the room or whatever that saying goes. That's something that there are all kinds of issues. It kind of got on the industry radar several years ago because there were a lot of the really big banks that were holding money up. It was a variety of reasons and all this kind of stuff. So um, I think, I think that's something you should think about doing. Now, before I give you your, the, the four little questions that I want you to comment on, Angela, that's related to that. 
and that kind of supplements everything that Joe and Clift has asked because I haven't covered this yet. I got four key points here. We could actually do an entire show on that, but you know, you'll you'll go through them in quick bullet points. Uh, the one thing and the one question I want to ask you is: so you'll be having your PowerPoint to me early next week? <laughs> How early? Well, I don't know. The sooner the better. They're all starting to come in. I, I haven't sent the Pete email out to everybody because I don't want all this stuff to come in at the last minute. So for those of you that are on here, uh, you know, we Angela is going to be one of the keynote speakers at the, my winter break event, which is first week of February. It's it's tucked conveniently between the um, between the uh, um, the core logic uh, event interconnect. And uh, the Versic, the, the uh, you know, Xactimate event, we're kind of in the middle of those two events, which both of those events are obviously pretty important and big events that a lot of the industry people will be going to. But Angela is going to do a keynote speech on best practices on a variety of things, kind of from cradle to grave, from uh, getting your contract secured, how to document the losses, and then if you need to move to, you know, getting paid, what do you have to do? A bunch of stuff she kind of covered. Uh uh, here, but should, it's going to be a much more logical talk. So I, I certainly be looking forward to do that. So the event um, has been kind of a below the radar event. I just saw that little question pop up and it's uh, it was an invitation only event. It essentially was pretty much almost sold out, but for the benefit of the loyal group of listeners and Angela, I don't know if you broke the record today. I think you broke the record. We had almost 80 people call in today we had the high 70s i don't think we hit the, the big 8-0 but we had 77 and 78 is that a record joe have we ever had that many live call in it's close it's doggone close uh, I, I remember we had some in the 40s and 50s but the one thing i will say is i think the reason for that is because miss your partner ed angela did an unbelievable job between social media and, and sent a two email blast out I mean, we have a lot of usual suspects who called in here who I know are regular, but there's a lot of new ones. So anyway, I appreciate you all calling in. It's really been a great show. And Angela, one other thing, just so you know, you're going to get an opportunity when you're down in Bonita Springs. Now, all of you listening are interested. The event is in Bonita Springs, which is about a half hour south of that Fort Myers uh, Southwest Regional Airport, right on I-75 in the beautiful Gulf Coast in Southwest Florida. And uh, it's February 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. And for those of you that are listening, if uh, you send me an email, which is PC, that would be uh, P. Paul C. Charlie Pathfinder, PC Pathfinder at Yahoo.com, and tell me you're interested, I'll send you some information. But you better do it really, really quick. And the reason for that is, number one, not only are we pretty darn close to sold out and they only have so many seats, the main hotel is not only my block sold out, the hotel is sold out because the snowbird season is tough. There's an overflow hotel very close by, another Marriott property, very good pricing. And there, that block goes off on, uh, there's some rooms available, but it goes off this Sunday. So if you want to do something, you got to do it quick. So reach out to me in an email. I'm going to be working over the weekend while I'm watching football. And uh, and you might be able to come in. And that's it's going to be a fabulous event. IQA Radio is covering it. We're going to do a live event from uh, Benita Springs, and then we're going to do a highlight show the week afterwards. So uh, anyway, that's it for that. Now, um, so Angela, here are the four things. And this is some stuff that would be covered in a mortgage book. Um, the first thing is 
just give a couple of comments from your own personal experience. And maybe this is just as being a Michigan contractor, an attorney in Michigan. Of course, all the years he worked for Belfort, let's just say on Michigan projects or in general. A couple of quick, fast bullet points that Cliff could put into the, uh, the blog referencing the Zarina's advice in dealing with mortgage companies, because that's a big thing about how to get paid if you don't do that. The second thing, and I'm going to give you a whole list of questions so you take some notes and think about how you want to address it. The second one is talk a little bit about unjust enrichment. You know, unjust enrichment, I know what the legal term means. I've talked about that. And this kind of lends to this situation where somebody, you know, uh, doesn't want to pay a bill for whatever reason or there's some little mistake in the execution of a contract and people's properties get improved. Anyway, I'll, you're the lawyer. I'll let you talk about that. Um the other thing, there's two specific terms that I can remember dating back to when I was an active contractor through the 80s and 90s, particularly in the years in California, two terms that we had in our contracts at the time. And this was kind of before I met Ed, but then after I met Ed, I always had talked to him about it. And I don't know how common these are anymore, but one of them was using the term that the contractor was not liable for consequential damages. Talk a little bit about that. And the other one was, we're not responsible for mysterious disappearances. You know, we, using terminology like that, in order for a non-lawyer to talk about that, that's because we were involved in situations where those things came up and we were legally advised to do that, particularly the, the mysterious disappearances. And when contractors are going into houses, they're not always occupied. Uh, there could be, you know, realtor locks in the doors, things of this nature. And then all of a sudden, someone says something's missing, and right away they start looking around, and they don't necessarily know how it was done. Had some bad experiences there. I, I think those are important terms that should be in contracts, and I think that the project managers or the lead people that try to execute them need to know probably how to how to answer those kind of questions. One of the things years ago when I was working with Ed, my lived in California, is we would have him, and I, I've had other attorneys around the country that would come in and hold mock sessions with the project managers, the lead superintendents, the tech, the head technicians, the people that are out there in the middle of the night that have execute contracts and uh, have to sometimes explain some of these questions, you know, uh, that there was actually a meeting in the minds uh, with the homeowners who may not understand the fine print what some of these terms mean. So uh, to recap, give some key points on mortgage companies, tell the audience what unjust enrichment is, how it would apply and the terms consequential damage and mysterious disappearances as far as uh, being listed in contracts and work authorization, things of that nature to uh, not only protect the contractor, but I think at the end of the day, it actually protects everyone because it creates clarity on a meeting of mind with the homeowner that they have a responsibility when they authorize people to come into their properties and to do work. And so anyway, that's it. A great job with the show. I look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. I don't know if I told you this, Rusty's going to be in town in Florida. He's coming to the banquet dinner to, to initially to break bed with his old buddy, uh, Pete, and uh, the Z-Man, Cliff. But I said, well, Angela's going to be there. I said, oh, great. He's going to have to break bread with Rusty. I don't know when the last time was he did that. <laughs> Looking forward to it, Pete. It's going to be it's going to be a blast. And your dinners are like my favorite favorite. So. Looking forward to that. Um, okay, so a quick, quick, a quickly to address your your questions. Um, dealing with mortgage companies almost as frustrating as dealing with insurance companies. <laughs> um, man, you can get on that line and they put you on hold, and then they make you jump through hoops to get through to somebody, and then you get through to somebody, and they don't know what they're supposed to do. 
I encountered this actually most most often when I had my own loss at my house and trying to get my mortgage company to release the funds. And I felt like I was on the phone arguing with them like for days on end. So very, very, very frustrating. Um, one thing that I would advise you to do is if there is a mortgage company that's going to be included on the checks, get a mortgage authorization signed at the beginning of the job when you're getting your contract signed. That's authorizing someone from your company to communicate directly with the mortgage company. Otherwise, they're not going to talk to you. So once you get that mortgage authorization, you can be in communications with the with the with the mortgage company directly, and you know you can be calling them out if they need to come out and do their inspections or whatever, and you know directing the communications on this. So I think the best what thing that um, contractors can do to protect themselves in that right is to get the mortgage authorization signed. And if anybody needs um, help with getting uh, that type of form put together, um, please reach out and we can help you uh, put something together. Um, with regard to unjust enrichment, so unjust enrichment is generally a legal theory that you can recover under where one party is benefited to another party's detriment, and it wouldn't be fair for that person to retain that benefit. So let's say the example is uh, when you have a, um, the, the, the lean example that I used earlier. So you've got a, you've, you get called out to a job by a general contractor um, to fix a building because the general contractor caused a loss on that building. So you go out to that building and you fix that building and you don't have a contract with the property owner, but you conferred a benefit on the property owner because you provided um, upgrades to their building. You, you, know, you, you, you provided an improvement to their building and they're gonna get to retain the benefit of your services. If you hadn't provided that benefit, um, their building would be less of less value than it currently is. So you don't have a direct contract with the property owner. You can't sue them directly on a breach of contract theory, but you could file suit against them on an unjust enrichment theory because you conferred a benefit on them. You spent money and you, you, you know, you you sacrificed to confer that benefit on them. And so it would be unfair for them to retain that benefit without compensating you for it. So that's sort of the basis of unjust enrichment. It allows you to plead an alternate cause of action in cases where you may not have a direct contract with an owner. Um, on, on, and it's, it's, it's based in equity. It's based in what's, what's fair and what's just. Um, the next thing that you had asked about is consequential damages. So um, most contracts will have a waiver of consequential damages and consequential damages is, so when you, when you have a party that breaches a contract, there's gonna be direct damages. So let's say you had a contract and your completion date was a certain day and you missed that completion date and that's 100% your fault. The, 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 the person who was scheduled to move back to the property, they're going to incur costs because of that breach. And so those, those would be considered the direct costs of the breach. Now, consequential damages would be um, a little bit more esoteric. So it's other damages that arose as a result of the breach, but that aren't direct um, damages caused by the breach. So um, like maybe uh, loss of business profits, um, things of that nature. And um, most um, most contracts, most good contracts, you're going to have a waiver of consequential damages in there because once you start getting into that territory, man, there's a lot of things that you can that you can you know put together as as examples of of um, you know damages that you have as a result of a breach. You, you know you can you can you can stretch that out pretty far, and so uh, it's it's you know you you always want to have a good uh, waiver of consequential damages in your contract, and then um, the mysterious disappearances. Yeah, that's a good one. So. The way to protect against that is that um, you have some sort of a provision in your contract that says that um, we're not responsible for um, items of you know x value that um, you know that aren't that aren't 
declared in writing by the client at the time of the loss. And so, you know, you don't want to be responsible for things like, you know, paperwork, insurance policies, handguns, um, anything that's illegal. Um, so you want to have a list of things that, you know, you're not responsible for, but then also um, a disclaimer that anything that's of value, you need to declare it to us in writing. So we're aware that it's on there. So we're aware of the value, but the, so we're aware that it requires special treatment um, if it's a vulnerable material or something. And so that's how you protect against that is, um, again, through your contracts, uh, good contracts are just so essential to protect you in so many ways. And, and this is just another example of it. Um, Cause you know, otherwise we, homeowners can, can just dream up a, a, a million things. Oh, I'm missing this and this and this. And you don't know if they ever had that, you have no idea. And so it's, it's fair for you to have that expectation that when you're gonna be going into their house, they've got to make you aware of those things in advance. Otherwise you're not gonna be liable for, um, you know, any, anything that happens to those things. Hey, uh, Joe, I got one final thing before I turn it back to you. So great job, Angela. I got you hit a lot of key points in there. I had a couple different examples, but I'm not going to weigh in. But I, the main thing is, I think all those points that you said, you know, Cliff, nobody does blogs like Cliff. He knows how to take talking points. And I think a lot of that stuff will be really good information because what's going to happen and what we'll find out is I think we're going to get an incredible amount of downloads on this. There's more people that do the downloads and that's tracked. And then also read the blog. And that's where the real benefit, because I'm sure Ed will do a nice couple of post things on the social media and that with the link. The blog will come out next Wednesday or Thursday. And, uh, Cliff, you know, you'll get a chance to review the blog uh, over the week and before it goes out. So I think that'll be great. The one thing I want to say that led to this thing about the about the, the mortgage book and those first two questions about this, this is why this is important. In 2012, at the RA Annual Convention, in Myrtle Beach, we had a one-hour session on that topic specifically. We had two attorneys. One attorney was a general industry attorney, but the other attorney was a high-end corporate attorney that worked for one of the big, large national companies. All right? And and then Patty Harmon moderated it, who was the editor and our communication director at the time for CNR and for RAA. And I was on the contract at the time, so I actually did a recap of that. And RAA actually published a paper on those proceedings that I was the primary author on, but that was reviewed by both attorneys. And it was called Dealing with Mortgage Companies. All right. And so that's uh, what, 12 years ago. The entire industry has changed dramatically in these last 12 years because there's just uh, more with the TPAs, there's more with everything. And post pandemic, digital age, I could keep going, right? There's a whole group of people now who may just not be aware of this. Now, even though the industry is consolidating, we have a lot of the larger networks, right, who probably are tuned into this to some degree. This company that shared that information, this was their own personal policy. And they gave 10 key talking points. And actually, for RAA training and education for our courses for years, we actually kind of used that because that document was posted at the time as part of the proceedings for the convention. And, uh, you know, it's like I say, a dozen years ago, but we've kind of used it indirectly to give points. And the t that, that's where, number one, the, the unjust enrichment term was used. The other thing that was used was that you have in the contract that the, that the, the property owner, then this lends to the assignment, names you as the, an attorney, in fact, so that you actually, the mortgage company has to talk to you <laughs> because otherwise they could blow you off just like an insurance company can. They say, we don't, we don't owe you anything. We don't have a contract with you. You don't have the proper contract. That was when they talked about pricing, where if you're not going to give a firm estimate, a firm number in there, 
that you actually have in the contract your pricing information that you're going to base it on, particularly in emergency service. Hey, anyway, there are 10 points. But the one thing I remembered, he started off by saying you have to have an SAT policy. And what the S stood for was, um, well, I remember what the T stood for. The T was threatened. The A, oh, the A was aggressive. And I'm trying to think what the S stood for That's so long ago. Oh, you have to be set up. So he said, you have to be set up to start with to deal with it. You have to be aggressive and you have to be willing to threaten. Essentially, that's what you said indirectly. And, I, and I'm not going to put words in an attorney's mouth. When you talked about contracts and getting paid, it starts from the minute it's done. And this is, was an exact message that they had in dealing with mortgage companies. Once you accept that job, and if there's a mortgage company involved, these are normally larger numbers than just mitigation and demolition kind of stuff. These are reconstruct jobs, you know, big things like that. I think the exposure, the reason that that was such a big issue at the time, Angela, there were a couple of members of the association in some states that got burned by a couple of the big banks, won't mention their names, who almost put them out of business. And they were projects for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And part of it landed to is because they were, the, the homeowner was in arrears on a mortgage but that had nothing to do with the work that was done that restored the property. And they basically wanted to take the money and that, and people, the industry was not prepared for it. At the end of the day, I think there's a whole new group of people that probably need that level of education if they're moving into that. So Cliff will put whatever notes in there. We'll take a look at it. We'll review where it's published. And now I've given brother Ed some new marching orders and an idea for a new book to mortgage it because the industry needs it. I think there's a need for it now. I don't know. Maybe Clifford, somebody tell me, Pete, you're just crazy and uh, you're off base. But somehow I don't think they're going to say that. But anyway, uh, I enjoyed the talk. Uh, enjoyed everything. Thank you to the whole audience and particularly the 60 or so that is still on there. Because a lot of times on these really intensive, very interesting talks, we usually run over about 10 or 15 minutes. We're right at that point. So, Joe, at this point, I'm done. Thanking everyone. I'm going to turn it back over to you and you can do the final wrap up to wrap the show up. And Angela, I'll see you in a few weeks. And uh, send it send it to me sooner than later on that PowerPoint. And anybody that's interested in a winter break event, I'll send you an agenda in a reg form and the link to the hotel. But you need to send me an email today. And if we need to have a call, put your cell phone number. I can call you and give you more details. And uh, anyway, uh, that's it. Thanks. Thank you, Pete. Much appreciated. Angela, before we go, is there anything we missed that you'd like to add? Um, yeah, just very quickly, I hope to see everybody at the RAA convention in Dallas, April 8th to 10th. Um, the Restoration Industry Association is the oldest and largest nonprofit professional trade association dedicated to providing leadership and promoting practices through advocacy standards and professional qualifications in the restoration industry. They do a lot for you. And, uh, you know, the, the, the forces that we're fighting against, the insurance companies are very well funded and they're very well organized. And we need to, you know, fight back accordingly and put our resources together. Um, and make everybody stronger. Um, I will be a part of a team presenting at the Strategic Strikes, Strikes Boot Camp, uh, that restoration cross-check, um, which is the consulting firm that my partner Ed owns, uh, will be putting on in advance of RIA. Um, and um, I'm going to be presenting alongside some industry legends, including Jeff Taxier. Uh, he's a insurance adjuster relations expert. We've got uh, pricing guru Anthony Nelson, Mark Pasculi, who's just a seasoned industry veteran, uh, two belt uh, diva Norma Valley will be there. And then, of course, my esteemed partner, the restoration advocate, Mr. Ed Cross, will be there as well. So I hope to see you all in Dallas. 
Um, if you are there, please come by and find me and say hello. I'd love to uh, meet and have uh, some face-to-face -face conversations with some of you. Great job, Angela. Much appreciated. Our thanks. Cliff, before we go, anything you wanted to add? No, I'm good, Joe. Thanks. My thanks to Angela Bayramai for a great show. My co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Uh, Grayson, Grayson Fisher filling in at the controls today. Great job, Grayson. Uh, Pete, Restoration Industry Global Watchdog, Consigli. Uh, most importantly, our loyal audience, and uh, we look forward to seeing you all back here. In two weeks, we've got the, the Moore family um, from the ATI group. That'll be a good show. Next week, uh, Grayson and I are going to put together a flashback show, and uh, we're slowly getting him uh, into the driver's seat for um, our John. You got to have faith who lost his electric today and could not join us, but uh, Grayson filled in admirably. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying we'll see you next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening. <laughs>